Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be back. I'm just yeah. extremely fucking tired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'll bet. Oh my god, getting back on Eastern Time Zone time from Japan has been crazy. I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning and just couldn't fall back asleep, and I was wide awake at 5 a.m., which is <laughs> oh no, not something I'm used to as somebody who stays up yeah. to like three or four. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, I am unfortunately jarring. used to it, but it does suck. There's no getting around that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, the. Yeah. It's great having you back in the office. You know, the interns and I, uh, I missed you. You might notice that there's a few, like, issues with, like, certain lights coming back on properly and a few technical issues. I had to go on down to the basement to mess with the... I had to unplug the server and plug that back in. Just because of some other... Some stuff that happened, we don't need to get into the details of it. Just some kind of technological stuff that was happening. Oh. that I had to deal with. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we don't need to get into the yeah. details of that, though. But that's why there's some some technical glitches going on. The Keurig machine is still kind of on the fritz as well. It's one of those Wi-Fi connected ones. And that, it, we don't, again, we don't need to get into the nitty, the, the nitty gritty of what happened. But it was, uh, a whole, it was a whole thing. I'll tell you that much. This wouldn't, the, this wouldn't happen to, you know, have anything to do with any AI exploration that took place while I was gone, right? Because you know I have a pretty firm no AI policy. Yeah. No. No, it has nothing to do with that. Okay. No, this is actually a different thing yes. um, that I'm talking about now. Okay. It just It's a different sort of technical issue that went on that's, that had nothing to do with that. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Okay. I took care of it. I mean, that's the important thing. There's and there's we're back to having two human hosts. We're not back to we. We have always had that. <laughs> that's the, always the way it's right, going to be, sure. and uh, that's what we're doing. So, you know, problem solved. I don't think we need to. I don't even think we need to fixate on it too much. Okay. Anyway, All right. We did well, actually proceed. like we could do the whole thing where we catch up and you tell about your trip, but we already did a, a little bonus episode for the the paid interns. So. If you want to hear about Jordan's trip to Japan, you can do so, but only if you're one of our devoted paid interns. It's on the bonus episode that we released uh, earlier today, actually. That's right. Theinsurgents.substack.com. At just five bucks a month, you get an additional episode every week. You help keep this show going. And in addition to uh, me talking about my trip and sleeping through a 5.4 earthquake <laughs> while I was in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. um, we also talked about Diane Feinstein, Elon Musk's CNBC interview where he claimed without evidence that a Nazi mass shooter wasn't actually an extremist. Rob's yeah. new king and so much more. Yep. Very excited about the new king. Um, that was my main, that was my main thing that I wanted to focus on. Shout out to the Royal family is with his, of course, grubby little fingers, <laughs> his, his weird little What's sausage fingers. There? I don't know. I really don't know. It's really disturbing though. You got to wonder how much this time this guy's got left, you know, he seems like he's on his, he's been waiting around to do this shit for a long time. He's on his last legs now. 
it's not good when your hand looks like that. Your fingers look like that. It's really, that's a troubling sign, I think. Yeah. Who, wait, who's next after him? Uh, William, William, I think. Yeah, I think so. Okay. He's the first son and everything. Yeah. All right. I think that's how so that works. We'll get him soon. Hereditary. I'm excited to have him on your money. Yeah, exactly. Let's get let's get that on there. Let's pass him all the sacred objects and cloaks and swords and scepters and all that stuff. Let's do the whole thing again. I'd one coronation wasn't enough, frankly, for me. I would like to have at least another one of those in the next couple of years. So I'm I'm raring to go for more of those. Uh, did you, I saw today because we talked in our conversation about the coronation. The queen's funeral cost. Uh, over two hundred million, yeah, which is just such an insane amount of money for a funeral. But they, they love ostentatious displays of, you know, pomp and circumstance and all this ritualistic bullshit at the taxpayers' expense. Absolutely, yeah. You'd think maybe they could pay for it themselves for once, but have enough money, these people. But <laughs> nope. <laughs> Times are tough in the royal family. Exactly. They're pinching pennies. Exactly. That's why they're doing podcasts now. Harry is like, I'm getting out of this game. I'm getting into the podcast, the content, the content world. Yeah. That's my space, sir. And 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 books. Like his his book has been a bestseller for so long, and I I don't understand why people would want to read that. Let alone why so many people want to read that that it has been on the bestseller list for months <laughs> there's probably because like they're so despised uh by the 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 real like monarchist freaks i bet there's a lot of people just like buying it just to like burn it or like to hate read it did you actually see this is two <laughs> episodes now where we've talked about the coronation stuff but did you see one of the extremely entertaining deranged conspiracy theories because like megan markle who these like who these British royalist loving the monarchist weirdos just fucking despise not for race reasons, of course, but for totally separate reasons. It has nothing to do with, uh, with any of that stuff. But um, I like, I remember like they're always coming up with wacky conspiracy theories about her. And I remember when she was pregnant, I got started like digging into this stuff of people are accusing her of having a moon bump. And like accusing her of like not actually being what? pregnant, but having like a fake pregnant belly that she was using to like have sympathy because she was like, I don't know. There was this whole like deranged online conspiracy about it. And then the thing that happened at the coronation is there was this like elderly British person with like this big comical mustache at this coronation. <laughs> and there was this whole like online uh, freak out because all these weird, absolutely just insane people, just absolutely insane people thought that it was Meghan Markle in the costume. She was wearing a disguise to go to the coronation and, and bring her devilry and her, her controlling manipulation and bringing it to the coronation, right? <laughs> going full mission impossible style putting on a fucking mask and everything <laughs> to go. That's, that's really great stuff. That's the amazing. fact that there's people that devote their whole lives to spending time thinking about that and coming up with these theories and stuff. That's, that's good stuff. Oh my God. That's such a sad, yeah. a sad way to live your life. And if you're going to be a conspiracy theorist, at least make it something cool. Yeah. Like start, you know, just go 
tried and true classic flat earth go with something like yeah. that like, yeah that's fun yeah <laughs> fdr was uh was getting alien technology by trading uh cow entrails to the aliens in exchange for technology what about that very cool yeah very cool one <laughs> the government can control the weather very cool one yeah monarchist stuff boring lame tired pathetic no we're not doing it's that. surf mentality we, we need conspiracy. To up the conspiracy game yeah, it is. It is. Like Jesus, have some self respect, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's what they're trying uh, to get you in Japan with the weather, the weather machine, the earthquake gun. They're trying to get you. They did it. Yeah, they were. They knew I was there, and they knew I was a threat. Yeah. <laughs> Jokes on them. I'm just sleeping right through that thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! The hundreds of listeners of the Insurgents podcast, dangerous, <laughs> dangerous, yeah. subversive audience. <laughs> oh no, we have thousands. Let's be real. Yeah, I know. Come on, but come on now. Our king, our king was featured prominently in. Yeah, I saw Wired that. today. It's not exciting. He might Did as well be a this, king. Uh, the way feature? that this piece is uh, written, Jesus Christ! Good like Lord, talking about right? having some self-respect. I was reading that piece about Pete Buttigieg today and I was just marveling at it. Like not only like thinking some of the thoughts, but then taking the time to like write them down. It's just, it was amazing. It was truly an incredible piece. It was written. It was written as if Pete Buttigieg sat down immediately, did an eight ball by himself and then started writing things about himself. Yeah. That's how flattering and over the top this was like some of the this, passages were just insane this man is just such a genius like talk about surf mentality it was this it was the exact same kind of mentality he's such a genius he's sound while in his mind palace like he's rotating a cube in three dimensions and thinking about fucking shakespeare or whatever while he's also somehow making these incredible concepts intelligible just a lowly pieces of shit like me i didn't even could possibly ever understand this and he somehow is able to make me this lowly worm loser able to understand some of these <laughs> brilliant ideas i was reading it just like oh my god like we're talking about pete Buttigieg here it's mayor pete from from south bend he's really not that impressive of a of a person but wow that was really unbelievable I mean, so much of this myth of Pete Buttigieg and his intelligence has been exposed already. During one of the CNN town halls in the 2020 primary, I think it was Dana Bash, brought up his, you know, self-proclaimed ability to speak (laughs) multiple different languages and asked if he would say something in, I think, what was it, Norwegian? Yeah. And he couldn't. Like, she's just open, open question can you say something in norwegian and he couldn't <laughs> and this is somebody who probably does a couple lessons in duolingo it's like yep i'm fluent now yeah and just checking o- all these Ola, boxes amigo. And no yeah. one thought to <laughs> yeah right it's it, it he couldn't do it like a, a, a sentence of whatever he wanted and he couldn't do it yeah you'd think if you're gonna claim if you're gonna make claiming to speak norwegian as being one of the centerpieces of like why people should vote for you to be the president of the united states i speak five languages Mm -hmm. but like maybe you want to learn a couple things just in case someone asks you that basic question 
he's really not counting on anyone yeah. following up on any of that stuff. Yeah, and nobody seems to want him to prove it, and it made an appearance in this piece. Again, this passage that I saw shared around a lot was really ludicrous. It reads, as Secretary Buttigieg and I talked in his under-furnished corner <laughs> office one afternoon in early spring, I slowly became aware that his cabinet job requires only a modest portion of his cognitive powers. Other mental facilities, no kidding, are apportioned to the Iliad, Puritan historiography, and Knausgaard's spring, though not in the original Norwegian slacker. Fortunately, he was willing to devote yet another apse in his cathedral mind to making his ideas about three mighty themes, neoliberalism, masculinity, and Christianity, intelligible to me. What what is this? What? <laughs> Why are we doing this? Yeah, think about like in another country. Like you know, they venerate their leaders as these like gods and stuff. Like the idea that like oh yeah, of course this is not this is not a piece of propaganda. It's really amazing too. And yeah, just this idea of like oh he made he somehow made these ideas intelligible to me. And then you actually read what he's saying, and it's just a bunch of like boring like kind of pseudo academic. Uh, drivel that says like nothing at all while trying to sound impressive and you can tell that this person is such like a so unimpressive themselves that they're like because i don't understand this this must mean that it's like really brilliant genius stuff but it's like he's not saying anything interesting in any of these answers it's a bunch of rambling nonsense a lot of the time yeah he it, i think he has hoodwinked a lot of reporters and pundits media elites just with his delivery He's he's certainly mastered a confident delivery in his tone. Yeah. And With his Obama impression. That I guess is you know assuring or, or comforting. Yeah, totally. And a lot of people just yeah, like feel that layer of comfort in what he says. And when he's saying I speak all these languages, it's like, wow, I don't do that. That must you must be really smart. You must be able to solve a Rubik's Cube in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just he hasn't really demonstrated like nothing he has done or said is really wowed me like no. he he's never really come off as this you know mega genius that the media has tried to frame him as for years well and even just uh, like lead uh, being put in charge of the department of transport like there's not he wasn't put in that position because if he has some brilliant ability or some some knowledge, intimate knowledge of transit like it's not like south bend indiana some kind of sprawling transit system that he was overseeing or anything like that <laughs> or because of his brilliant ideas he got that position because he fucking played ball with the democratic party and he was a good little boy and did as he was told right. and uh helped get biden the nomination and then he got a chance to get a cushy little spot in the administration so he could get some face time on cable news and hopefully uh, eventually be put in the position where he can be the, one of the people that's kind of leading the new generation that's leading the party. That's been one of the funnier things about Pete as a national figure is that, you know, they really tried to make him and Kamala Harris, the kind of like the, the anoint them as being the future leaders of the party and the future of the people, the people in the next generation that are going to take the reins from the old guard and lead it into the future. But no one has bought it. Like no one, in the primaries, like both of them fucking fell flat, except if, if you count Pete's like totally fraudulent Iowa thing and just his kind of totally artificial media boost, you know, no one really bought it. 
And now they've both been given these prime roles of the administration. So hopefully, like, you know, they'll still get that FaceTime, they'll still get the media exposure, and they'll still get the name recognition. And hopefully then still, then they'll they'll be able to be put in that position of leading the party. And still no one fucking cares. In fact, he's been at the front end of like all these big disastrous like transport issues, like the East Palestine derailment, which he handled extremely poorly as well saying like, well, don't you know there's like hundreds of train derailments every year? And it's like, but Pete, that's bad though. That's not good. Like that's supposed to be something you should be getting on top of here. Yeah. So it's like they've been just (laughs) been given, Pete's been given opportunity after opportunity to shine and to be, to get the media spotlight and these big kind of hagiographic uh, uh, bio pieces, just like drooling all over how fucking great he is. And just like, it hasn't, it hasn't really moved the needle at all. Um, which is kind of extremely funny just in and of itself. Yeah. One more quote that I wanted to read because I thought it was really funny. She asks, running DOT seems to suit you. Are there more ways the challenges of transportation speak to your spiritual side? And he says, there's just a lot (laughs) in the scriptural tradition around journeys around yep. roads right a lot of stuff the about roads of in there, the old bible happens on the road <laughs> there's there's roads in the bible think about <laughs> yeah. it man the yeah, conversion so of saint paul happens on the road i think we are all nearer to our spiritual potential when we're on the move something about movement something about travel pulls us out of the routines that numb us to who we are to what we're doing everything from our relationships with each other to our relationships with God. That's part of the reason why so many important things in the Bible happen on highways. Rob, this reads like a Liberty University sophomore got high for the first time in his dorm. I know. It's just so funny. Like, it's just, I'm trying to imagine the type of person that would be impressed, that would sit there and listen to that and be like, oh my God, this is the smartest person I've ever spoken to in my entire life. It's like, it's really everything about Jesus this is so amazing. Roads, man. Think about it. Yeah. Whoa, man. Yeah. No, exactly. It's like this, this, it's like dorm room, dorm, weird dorm room shit that was probably cooked up in mm-hmm. some kind of McKinsey thing as a sound bite that he could use to kind of try to justify the fact that he's in this position that he has no experience in. Um, and trying to, yeah, they're trying to kind of position him as like this kind of new masculinity and he's appealing to these he's showing his religion and his faith and stuff. And they're trying to show how they can, uh, someone like Pete Buttigieg can appeal to these uh, salt of the earth, middle America types. And it's like, they don't care. They're not, they're I guarantee the people that that's supposed to be appealing to are not buying it. Believe me. No. Yeah. No, not at all. Very funny though. Very funny piece. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. If you hate yourself and want to waste a good 30 minutes, I would encourage you all to read the Wired yep. interview with Pete Buttigieg. And, and boy, howdy do I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we should get to our, our conversation uh, today. I spoke to Annie Wu Henry, digital strategist who was on the Fetterman campaign and recently the Helen Gim campaign in Philadelphia. Annie and I talked about the elections in Pennsylvania uh, this week. Philadelphia had a mayoral primary. uh, Pittsburgh had a couple couple primaries. Philadelphia didn't swing progressives away as much as people would have liked, 
but Pittsburgh did. So we talked about, generally speaking, the recent elections in Pennsylvania, what those say about the races and the ways the candidates can run and win in purple states, and what people and candidates across the country should take away from these elections and the messaging within them. Really, really good conversation with Annie Wu Henry. Uh, get to that right after this, I guess. It's usually me that says that. I know. I As I was saying it, I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm, I'm going off script. <laughs> You're going to be able to hear Jordan's conversation with Annie Wu Henry right after this. digital strategist for progressive campaigns. Annie, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm tired, but I'm, I'm doing okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine it's been a, uh, a pretty hectic couple weeks for you, but also, you know, pretty busy past couple of years for you. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate you um, making the time. <laughs> it's uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm like very aware of my mental health. Um, but no, it happened to be funny because I do a lot of work with obviously AA NHPI groups and um, a pack there. And so a lot has been happening for our community with AA NHPI Heritage Month, um, but then also as a Pennsylvanian and right now a Philadelphian. Um, it was a, an election year. I mean, every year is an election year, but it was particularly one in Philly. And we just had our primary. So, yeah, it was timing was a little crazy in May. Imagine. So what are you doing to, to take care of yourself this week? Um, well, I slept in a little bit today and I'm just trying to like get my life together today and tomorrow, hopefully. And then I'm actually going to be seeing my parents and family a little bit coming up. So that'll be nice. Um, I mean, all of this work, though, in the past month, especially with the ANHPI stuff, um, it's it's really fun and it's all community focused. And um, even, you know, campaigns are hard, but the GOTV and the election day, like that's all really exciting times because it's I'm a people person and it's so much about community and people and seeing people come out and come together and some of our big events at the end of the campaign. And so, yeah, it was it's been good, not stressful and, you know, completely like bad ways. It's just like very tiring, but in, in all the best ways. So seeing getting to be in community was just nice in general. Absolutely. This work, while it can be draining, it is fulfilling. So it makes that exhaustion much more worthwhile. It's, you know, you'd much rather be tired and worn out from doing something that matters and is fulfilling and helps create a better world versus, you know, putting in 10, 12, 14 hours at, you know, some Wall Street firm that's just making things worse. So I totally hear you. It's 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 fulfilling at the end of the day. Annie, we start these conversations off with the same question, just so we know who we're dealing with and, you know, whether or not we should even be giving this person a platform. Just just a, a straight down the middle fastball. And now it's your turn, Annie. Annie, are you so, a gamer? 
am I a gamer? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. Um, oh, no. Um, I don't know. I, like, when I was younger, like, I, I feel like growing up, I probably should have been a gamer because, like, I had all of the different, like, early 2000s video games of, like, like the early Playstations and, like, the Nintendo and DS and, like, um, Game Boys and stuff like that. And I would always get, like, the new ones. I remember, like, when they had the light and when it became color and, like, then they got the attachment. Um, but then I was really involved in gymnastics. And so I think, like, sports and stuff like that, then I just didn't do that. Um, I tried to play some Call of Duty at my, na- like, college house's, um, neighbor uh, it was like next to the lacrosse house and like they were always playing and I tried to play with them a little bit and it, I was just I was not very good um, I like would just hide and <laughs> like I do okay because I would just hide but I would never win um, but I'm really good at um, a Mario Kart and stuff okay. and we bowling you know I think those count. Those definitely count. Okay. I have I have rock band still. My parents are like really mad because oh. I've like taken it to every house like I've lived in, like in college and after <laughs> college. And I have like all the guitars and the drum set and everything. And they're like, this takes up so much space. I was like, but like, it's fun to pull out. So I have yeah. that stuff. Yeah. I wish they still made those rhythm games. They were so much fun. They had a strong few years and then they just, they stopped making them. Those are great party games just like Wii Bowling or Mario Kart. I think they should continue Maybe they'll come them. back. I hope like, so. Like how vinyl and everything comes back. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe like the Wii will come back. <laughs> you know, just like music or fashion can be cyclical, so too can, can video games and styles of video games. I like that. I like that. I hope you're right. Uh, but, but Annie, you're here to talk about the elections in Pennsylvania on Tuesday. And we saw a few races, you know, swing progressives way in Pittsburgh and, you know, a tough but still pretty strong showing in Philly for Helen Jim. And as somebody who was, you know, close to the Philly race, uh, we saw some media coverage trying to spin it as, oh, progressives are just too soft on crime. This narrative we're seeing time and time again. We saw GOP megadonors try to tank uh, tank her because she was the progressive candidate in that field. You saw a somewhat crowded field condense to a few candidates, and unfortunately, uh, she didn't win. But I'm I'm wondering what your takeaway from that race was, and why people shouldn't let that dissuade them from you know the optimism that has been growing over the past few elections over the past several months. Where progressives had have had really strong showings. So, so what is your what is your takeaway, and what should people understand about this race? Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors of every race, and I am just you know, I, I lived in Pennsylvania for like most of my life, grew up in Central PA. I'm still like adjusting and, and understanding Philadelphia and the history of politics there, and, and how everything interacts. Um, I do some work with the Working Families Party. I did some work with the Helen Gim campaign, um, not as a full-time staffer, but, and obviously have, have been in community here. And I think, you know, 
while Helen did not come out victorious in this race, like there was a, like she, she put up a very good fight. Um, and if we think about eight years ago, um, and just, you know, a few years ago, the, the progressive block and the progressive organizing in Philadelphia was not what it is now. And people, I think, we see all of it now and kind of expect it um, because now there are all these organizations and these people on the ground and these people that are obviously like coming together to, to try to build this power in this one of the largest cities in the country. But it wasn't always like that. Like Philadelphia has long had very much establishment, very much machine similar to Chicago politics. And, you know, Helen was one was the first like real progressive that got into city council and was an outsider and kind of not taken super seriously and didn't have, you know, again, all of these organizing groups supporting her when she first ran back in 2015. And like she had the teachers union back then and like there was organizing and then she got into office, but it it was still building that power. And then we see people like Nikhil Saval in 2020. And we see right before that was Kendra Brooks, who was the first working families party candidate that got elected in the minority of city council because, you know, you have to have some minority seats. Um, And typically they were held by Republicans, but with the working families party, we found we don't need to have, we don't need to have Republicans there. And actually we can have probably even more progressives be in those seats. And so And before that, it was Elizabeth Fiedler and we had, you know, um, Larry Krasner and we've had Rick Krajewski. We've had these shifts and now there is, you know, it's still small compared to to how many politicians are in Philadelphia at large, but it's growing and like the movement is growing. And, you know, this was a test of of where it's at and it it wasn't ready to to really have a candidate like that be victorious on you know the largest election of of our city but you know it it's something that if you think to a decade ago wouldn't have been even you know wouldn't have been even possible and so i think the amount of doors the amount of people on the ground the amount of support we saw nationally i mean we had local support but we also had national progressives that a lot of people said like oh they're outsiders but it was more of like as progressives this is what's happening in the city and people there need to be paying attention and these large politicians whether it was bernie or aoc or mayor wu or um representative bowman or representative presley like all of these progressives saying like no, it's possible. And, you know, there were there were elements of our race that were different than, say, Brandon Johnson. We didn't get a runoff. You know, if if we could have had a runoff, how would things look? Um, and, you know, obviously our field was was very crowded and there's there's racial dynamics. There's the labor was different in, in our case than it was in Chicago um, and, and so many different pieces. But I think, you know. Helen, it wasn't a failure in the sense that I think some people are are saying it was Um, because, again, like, look how look how much we progressed. And there's still obviously work to do, Um, but it never would have even begun if like she in 2015 and council, if that never would have gotten started. So there's there's a lot of the story that people need to understand. 
Absolutely. You know, there's this idea that Democrats, no matter where they're running, but especially in purple states, that they need to run as moderates. And again, these races over the past couple of years have shown that isn't necessarily the case. That speaking to people's material conditions, speaking to issues of uh, economic inequality does resonate with people across the political spectrum and something that we are all affected by. And a vast majority of people, especially rational political observers, recognize and are upset by. So in your experience from from this campaign to recent campaigns, what have you seen and what has worked for progressives, even in purple states, speaking to and running on these issues? And what do you want candidates and people in other states across the country who might be you know, a little bit more closer to the middle uh, to understand about this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, especially with young people, but overall, nobody likes to feel like they're not being given the truth. And I think so much of the time we try to cater to everyone. And like, to be very honest, like no politician is probably going to make anyone fully happy with every single thing they do or every single belief. And I'll say that about, about even progressive politicians, there are things that they, they do or ways that they go about things that, that I don't agree with. And I think trying to shape shift and trying to appease everyone at large, like that's a not genuine. Cause like you really, you're not going to be able to do that. Like people are going to be upset in one case or another. Um, but it's also like, just also show what you're about and the people that are about that will, will support you. And then also you can hopefully talk about why you are about those things and why those things are important that will get more people on board. I think one of the things I was extremely proud of with the campaign on both, you know, John Fetterman's campaign earlier in Pennsylvania and now with with this campaign that I was, you know, a small part of and I give so many kudos to the Helen Gim campaign and the team that they have put together um, is that they really said, no, this is what this is what we're going to stick to. And we can say that we want a Green New Deal for public education. We can say that we think housing is a human right. We can we can say these things and it do, that's not bad um, and we shouldn't have to shy away from that. And I think even with this, you know, this slate, we've seen with some of the other candidates how they've, you know, bent a knee to different sources of, you know, whether it's establishment or money or whatever, um, to try to say like, well, this is what I'm going to need to do to win. And whether that's, you know, with, with, um, our previous mayor Nutter and his austerity budget and like say, and then aligning themselves with, with things like that, or, you know, money from Jeffrey Yass and, and how corrupt that whole thing is and how he is just trying to, you know, buy his way into power in our state and in our cities. Like, we don't need to do those things. Like if you have good ideas and if you have good people and if you have like true values, it might take more time and it might take more energy, but you can do it. And I don't think we have to say like, well, to win, you might have to take some money from these people or to win, you might have to, you know, say you're okay with charter schools. You don't need to do those things. (laughs) Like you don't need to do those things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's 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 talk about Jeffrey Yass for a minute. This is the richest person in Pennsylvania. He's one of the richest people on the planet. He's worth tens of billions of dollars. He is an options trader. 
I mean, this isn't this isn't somebody who is out there creating jobs as as so many wealthy elite like to position themselves as doing. This is somebody who is making money in financial markets, just purely off of other people's labor. And he is, you know, like you say, trying to buy elections in Pennsylvania and certainly trying to stop progressive momentum in Pennsylvania. Uh, the Intercept reported that as of uh, earlier this week, he had already spent a million dollars, over a million dollars on this race, uh, a good amount of which was trying to stop Helen Gim. Could you talk about his role in that race and how frustrating it is for people who, for you and for other people who work in the progressive world, which relies largely on small dollar donors, uh, how frustrating it is in your experience to see these campaigns and these candidates running on issues that matter to people when you're looking up, you know, it's a pretty steep hill to climb when you have a billionaire just pouring millions into a race. I mean, I think whenever I see so much money being fed, especially against someone like, like Helen, um, and things especially in like the movement is like you can tell that they're they're very scared um and it's it's clear because they're spending ridiculous amounts of money um to stop to stop that and the amount of money spent against helen the amount of attacks it just showed from from yes from from republicans um from conservative people online saying like change your change your registration to be Democrat so you can vote in the primary for, you know, these other candidates, it, it shows that they, they, they are scared and they wouldn't be scared if they didn't know that there was power there and that there was potential there. And that really, there is the ability to transform our city and transform our politics. And I think, We've we've beaten people like Yass before, um, and he's he's tried to buy elections, and it it we just don't have to do it. And I think with some of the other candidates, it's also like we're we're all Democrats on on this ticket. Um, we should all be speaking out about this type of this type of move coming from again like the richest man in Pennsylvania and who we know him to be, and people people didn't. People align themselves like it just it it says something um, and also like the silence of certain things and the people settling and saying it's OK or not or not really not really paying attention to that part of it to me says something, especially in a lot of these a lot of the voters that are, are claiming to be progressive or they're claiming to be these things like like why do these things not signal that like maybe who you're supporting isn't as progressive as they say they are. Or if they're not saying, like, if this guy is attacking this person, why maybe that person might have some power that that he's he's scared of. Yeah, absolutely. One of the go-to attacks against progressives and races recently has been about crime and police. Did you see much of this, you know, kind of bad faith, oh, uh, the, the progressives want to abolish the police. They want more crime in cities. Did you see any of that in, in this race? Did in do you think that narrative is a successful one at kneecapping progressives? I mean, crime and safety is it's so hard because 
everyone wants to, everyone is very valid in the sense of like, we want to be safe. We want our families and kids and friends and neighbors. We want people to be safe. And like in Philadelphia, that is a very valid concern and something that like people, people want and they want it to improve in the city. Um, I think that in solutions for it, um, there's, it's hard because it's, it's a nuanced conversation and nuance is hard and it's also hard to campaign with. Um, but so much of Helen's vision for the city, um, especially compared to the other candidates, I sat in on debates and watched some of the debates streamed like her vision was investing in communities and investing into resources and programs and people in ways that we know reduces things in a longer term effort and more sustainable way um, rather than, you know, some of these things that are more Band-Aid solutions or, you know, maybe not even solutions actually at all when it comes to like how much things reduce actual crime. But I think like, I mean, people are valid in when they're, they're saying like, I care about safety and like not, and wanting to ensure that wherever they're putting their vote is going to help that. And I think it's, it's not a lot of people are also saying some like not great like remarks about like ignorance. I don't think it's that either, because, again, like people are very valid in wanting to feel safe and wanting their communities to be safe. And so, again, I think it's just making sure that the progressive ideas and solutions get translated better and also are like in the communities that we want to be reaching out more to of like, we also want that. Like we all want the same things. And these are solutions that like we think will help and like hear us out on, on how, how that could be. And I think that comes from, again, like we talk about deep canvassing. We talk about talking to our neighbors. We talk about getting into communities and talking to people and that that's going to take time. And I think we're, we're starting there, but we, we definitely need to continue. Definitely. Uh, on the flip side, we saw a couple progressive wins in Pittsburgh. Sarah Inamorato won county executive, uh, which is a very exciting development for somebody who was a DSA candidate just a couple of years ago and has you know, steadily been climbing the ranks uh, over in Pittsburgh. What do you think her race and the progressive wins at large in Pittsburgh show about, you know, coupled also with, you know, Fetterman's win? What do you think these races collectively show about the path to victory in a purple state? I mean, Western PA is such an exciting th – there's such an exciting thing happening out there because um, I also think it's not given the same – focus as like a, a Philadelphia it's it's not as big of a city um and it's obviously a very different dynamic of a city it's it's more midwestern in culture and just in general but I think like there is such a shift from you know John Fetterman to Summer Lee to and Ed Ganey right before that um and so I know Summer tweeted about like it's giving trifecta you know I think there's such potential um I think organizing out there is been a bit different than out on the eastern side of the state and it's growing in power as well i think when it comes to like establishment i'm not i'm not going to say i'm like as versed in western pa politics but from what i know it's it's been more you know 
family power of like a lot of of those dynamics of people and kind of dynasty politician families out out in Pittsburgh that that don't really exist anymore the way that they used to. Um, whereas the um, eastern side in Philadelphia has more of the machine establishment. Um, but you know, like I said, like the dynasty kind of structure like isn't really a thing. We have these progressives that are kind of like now figuring out how do they coalesce? Because also you think about, you know, Sarah's win wouldn't have been possible without the organizing and kind of organizational group that happened with where Summer Lee started and and what's being built out there. So I think it's, again, continuing to build that power in a city that's going to obviously not every city is a one size fits all, but there is the ability to organize. There's the ability to build power. And now that we're getting people into government that can also make structural changes and shifts that we can then show people and say, but but this, if we had more, look look at how much we can do. Um, I think that there's so much potential that it's just, it's so exciting. And I think Sarah's win just shows again that it's, people are ready. You just need to give them a reason. You need to give them the resources and support and like, get bring them in again with organizing and you need to give them good candidates like Sarah to be able to support and say no I get it I get why we need these types of policies and thoughts around policy and then also like good people that were, will be there that feel like they actually they're from the communities and they will care and um, they will fight for me definitely if there was somebody listening to this who is considering, you know, volunteering or getting involved in a progressive campaign in 2024 as somebody who has really uh, shown they know how to break through in digital campaigning for progressives. What would be your best piece of advice for somebody who's just getting started about how to shape that message and break through and especially in a purple state or what the conventional wisdom is to run as a moderate. What would you say to somebody to, you know, stick to issues that matter to them and to the district material, financial, uh, you know, identity and anything like that? What would you say to somebody who wants to get involved? So much comes down to community and support and relationships. I think, Again, like I know it's such an overused word at this point, but authenticity and that comes down to policy as well. Again, like we talked about earlier in this conversation, I don't think you need to water down your beliefs or try to fit some sort of mold or do what you think is going to help you get votes because you want you want people to vote for you because they 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 believe in you and all of what that is. And so I think it's, it's sharing that it's sharing narrative and personal stories and why you care, you know, something like gun violence, for example, like, I think the reason why so many young people are passionate about that issue and can, can speak to it and advocate for it is because they personally understand it, unfortunately. And so, but that is what breaks through, I think, especially in such a political like Jardin and all of these political theater. That's what breaks through is like stories. And again, people want to know that the person that is going to represent them is actually 
gets them. And being able to share about how you got involved, why you got involved, why you care about things, um, and doing it in ways that are authentic and also don't need to be in, again, like these political jargon, like ways, like talking to people like they're people. Because like we think about voters as in like, yes, they are numbers and statistics, but they're people. And they're people that they have feelings and lives and reasons why they care about things. And so it's breaking through all of that. Awesome. Annie, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people follow you on various platforms? Um, uh, well, I'm at Annie, A-N-N-I-E underscore Wu, W-U underscore 22. Um, I'm also going to give a shout out of like, I'm doing some work with the AAPI Victory Fund, as well as the Working Families Party and PA Working Families Party. Um, so finding any of any of those groups. And then also just like, I mean, if you're in Philly following community organizations, which I usually, you know, will tag and, and things like that. But I think, you know, follow if you want to follow me, that's fine. <laughs> um, but also, I think following people in your communities and pe- and groups in your communities. And that's the also the best way to get involved is like like who's around and so much even, you know, national is great, but local is going to be where things are at. It's going to be where protests are organizing or, you know, just like people getting together to like talk about what's going on and how, how you can get involved. Um, that's, that's where to start. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>